BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is not the outcome we wanted or we worked so hard for, and I'm sorry that we did not win this election. To all Republicans and Democrats and independents across this nation, I say it is time for us to come together as one united people. We are now all rooting for his success in uniting and leading the country. The peaceful transition of power is one of the hallmarks of our democracy. From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. Day two, and a kind of acceptance sets in. Guided by the familiar rituals of a peaceful transition of power, a defeated candidate who graciously concedes, and an outgoing president who invites us to keep an open mind. We're starting to move beyond the shock, back to reality. But it's a new one, and we're trying to make sense of it. In two parts, how did the polling fail us so spectacularly? And what does this mean for millions of Americans who feel deeply threatened by Trump's presidency? We'll start with the numbers. We've spoken to the Upshot's Nate Cohn on nearly every episode of this show. And as we all now know, the data had real flaws. Hi, Nate. Hey. I would like to ask you how you explain what happened last night. Um, I think that Donald Trump posted unprecedented margins among white voters without a degree across the old strongholds of the Democratic Party in the northern part of the United States. I think that some of this was seen by the polls and some of it wasn't. I think that Hillary Clinton probably could have survived that if she had done as well among well-educated voters in the suburbs as I think a lot of people thought she might. Uh, And to the extent that that happened nationwide, it didn't happen uh, in the battleground states. And that was enough to flip Midwestern states that have voted Democratic in many consecutive elections. What actually happened in America's suburbs, which are Uh, so 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 decisive? I think it's it's worth carving that up into a few chunks of suburbs almost. You know, there are the suburbs that are full of the sort of professional class, affluent liberals, the liberal elite, if you would, uh, places like you know, the suburbs of Seattle or Boston or Chicago or San Francisco. And those those suburbs broke overwhelmingly for Clinton. She did better there than Obama did. But there's another type of suburb, and that's a, a more middle-class suburb, not full of lawyers and professors, but people in, you know, white-collar jobs. Maybe the mic- the percentage of people who have a college degree is high, but it's not like 70 or 80 and Donald Trump held his own there. And in some parts of the country, uh, he actually did much better than Romney in those sort of suburbs. Macomb County, Michigan, outside of Detroit, the suburbs of Cleveland, all of the sprawl along the coast of Florida, Daytona Beach, to sort of complete your mental image, I guess. But those sort of suburbs were very good for Trump last night. At what moment did you realize, oh my God, the polls had this wrong? Oh, that's a good question. I think it, for me, it happened in in two steps. So the first was, you know, we get this big chunk of early vote out of Florida. And I'd, we'd sort of, you know, we wrote this on the internet last night. 
or a couple nights ago that, you know, by 8 p.m., we're going to have a good sense of what's going on in Florida. And, you know, my expectations based on our analysis of the early vote was that Clinton was going to lead in the early vote in Florida by a pretty clear margin, maybe not like a landslide. But, you know, if she was going to win Florida by two points, she was going to be up in the early vote by three or four. And it was basically deadlocked in the early vote in Florida. And so at that point, you know, we were like, okay, this is going to be a long night, and it's going to come down to what happens in the Midwestern firewall states because she's not going to get a knockout blow in Florida. And the parts of the country are so different that you can't necessarily infer that, okay, so she didn't get the huge Hispanic vote in Florida that she thought out of Miami-Dade. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything about Michigan or Pennsylvania yet. And those polls closed a little later. But once those polls closed, it was like, it was immediately evident that just the very first results, like five counties in, even a little bit from Wisconsin and Michigan, that in fact, the white working class problem that was evident in the South, which reports earlier, was worse for her. Uh, the further north you went. And then at that point, uh, we did not think that she was favored in any of the Midwestern states at that point. So that was probably what, like 9, 30, 10? I think that between 9 and 10, we went from thinking, okay, we'll see how she does in the Midwestern battlegrounds too. She might not win any of them. As somebody who studies polls all day long, but also does your kind of your own original thinking yeah. about the math of this election, I wondered what it felt like to see the, I mean, is disjunction even the right word? Like the like vast gulf between what the public polls were telling us and what you were seeing flow You know, it's in. weird. There are parts of me that look at it and say, wow, this is almost exactly like what we thought it was going to be. And there are parts of it where it's not at all like what we thought. And so let's just start with the national polling, for instance. You know, Clinton was up by three or four points in the national polls. She's going to win the popular vote by one and a half or two. In the end. She is. It's not going to be, the, the national polling error is not going to be especially large. And, you know, the basic story that the national polls told held up. You know, they said, and we wrote this over and over again, that Clinton is doing much worse than uh, Barack Obama among less educated white voters. She's compensating for that basically equally from gains among Hispanic voters and, and well-educated whites. And it basically puts her where Obama was four years ago. In truth, it was a little worse than that, right? She did, you know, it's not going to be a four-point win like Obama. It'll be, or the polls, it'll be, a, you know, a two-point win or one and a half point win, maybe one. But, you know, it's that story was not fundamentally different. In the battleground states, though, the battleground state polling was systematically uh, biased towards Clinton uh, to a much greater extent, particularly in these upper Midwestern states. I mean, I, I could be, uh, my memory could, could be off. I don't think that Donald Trump led in one poll of Wisconsin this year, not one. And I don't think that there were any more than a handful uh, that showed him winning Pennsylvania and Michigan. So from that point of view, I mean, that's a huge and narrow polling error in one part of the country at the state level. I would note, though, that, you know, in some of the other states that were not as competitive, the polls were not that off. Um, and oddly, a lot of the places where Clinton, the, the polls were not as good for Clinton as she ultimately did were states like Colorado and Nevada, California, New York. Uh, New Mexico, all states with the large Hispanic population. So we have this weird thing where the pre-election polls, um, you know, underestimated Clinton in a bunch of states that she was favored to win uh, and overestimated her in the states she needed and were closer. I want to talk about the Upshots election forecasting model, which Mm -hmm. I know you're not solely responsible for, but you understand it and what happened last night. Uh, As the night wore on, we saw that little meter on the website uh, start to swing in the opposite direction. Um, and it went from hovering 
I guess at its height to around like 85 or it started at 85 that was the, so that's some forecast based on the polls by the end of the night 95 percent chance of victory for Donald and that was Trump. fudged by the way and a little inside knowledge we did not allow it to go higher than 95 sure. for fear of that's contradicting projections so for people who aren't so data literate it's gobsmacking and confusing sure so can you help explain it so the i mean the model started at 85 which is what we thought based on the pre-election polls and that model assumed that Clinton would lead by by about four points in the national popular vote. When the results came in, you know, we dismissed the polls really quickly. You know, if the polls say that Clinton's going to win uh, by four and she's underperforming our projections by five, you know, we don't need much more than that. And so the moment we knew what was going on in the Midwest, her numbers plummeted. And, you know, there were there were a lot of people last night who, you know, sent me angry emails or messages about how sure we could be, but... You know, the, the attenuation in Clinton's strength in the, in the upper Midwest was so dramatic and evident immediately because those rural counties come in first in many instances. And they complete first, which for our model is the most important thing. You know, when a county is 10 percent in, you can't really put too much stock in what it says at that point. But a rural county can complete fast and you don't need many of them to figure out what's going on. Well, I want to talk about those rural counties. Why do we think that the public polling, which becomes so vital to our forecasting models, undercounted or sort of didn't quite detect this white, blue-collar, rural voter who was turning out in such high volume for Donald Trump? So we don't know. In fact, I'm not even sure that that will ultimately be the reason the polls were wrong. Um, so, for instance, we knew the whole time that Clinton was going was a considerable underdog in Iowa, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, of all of the battleground states, the one where white working-class voters make up the largest share of the electorate. So that tells me that, you know, I'm not sure that the polls had some fundamental problem capturing the white working class vote. What I think, and again, this is all preliminary and we'll see what it ultimately says, but given that, I think that what we'll find is that well-educated Republican voters came home at the end. And that in a state like Wisconsin, where in you know, the Milwaukee suburbs, you know, Clinton was tied in some polls. I mean, she didn't lose by as much as Obama did, but Trump ultimately did win you know, Waukesha County or Waukesha County, however it's pronounced, by 30 points. And we'll get to the bottom of that. You mean, when you say come home, by the way, you mean they just decided to vote Republican? They voted Republican in the end. Um, and I don't know that that's the main mechanism for the error in the polls, but it would not surprise me if that was the case, given the geography of the polling error and the county results that we have. I want to talk about who didn't show up okay. at the polls and the Democratic turnout, which seems like strikingly, maybe even historically kind of depressed in this election, or maybe that's just because of... I don't think I agree with that. You know, it's it's far too early to assess the final turnout. There are millions of votes left to be counted, uh, especially out West. Our forecasting model is the same one from last night, uh, currently has the final turnout ultimately eclipsing 2012 levels once all the votes are counted. Well, what do you mean by Democrats? Good question. Um, let, me re-ask, let me re-ask. It feels from what I'm seeing out there that Democratic turnout was significantly less in certain places okay. than it was in 2012 so and 2008. Here's where I think Democratic turnout was down. I think it was down in Wisconsin, which was a state that was plainly contested in 2012. You know, the president had a f- rally in Wisconsin on the last day of his campaign. Clinton never went there this time. Every poll showed Clinton ahead. So I think that's a campaign effect. That's, you know, voters not believing that this is one of the most important states in the election anymore. Um, voter turnout was down in majority black areas. Uh, that's obvious. 
it's um, indisputable, and it's across the country. It's true in the rural South and the you know the old black belt of former plantations that stretches from the Mississippi Delta all the way back through Virginia. It's true in the big majority black population centers of the industrial North like Cleveland or uh, Milwaukee. It's not, however, evident to me that you know the Democrats should blame their loss on that decline in black turnout. I mean, you could, I suppose that it is possible when all the votes aren't encountered and we get the data back that we need to make this assessment, that we could conclude that perhaps Clinton could have narrowly won, barely, and I really mean barely, like recounts, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, if black turnout had been in 2012 levels. Of course, that would not have been the principal reason for her decline. I mean, Obama won Michigan by 10. Obama won Pennsylvania by more than five. He won Wisconsin by more than six. So what did he have beside the surging black and Latino vote that she didn't? Again, I mean, Donald Trump won a large number, a very large number of white working class voters who supported the president twice. And I think that's something that a lot of people, particularly if you're an ideologically committed person who's you know, has strong, consistent views on the issues. You can't fathom. You can't fathom that. But, you know, I think that if you think about it from the perspective of, you know, lower information voters who are in the white working class, that they actually had very similar messages, Obama and Trump. Of disruption, of change. I I think it's even deeper than that. Like Obama ran saying that we need to take on the special interests. I'm going to fight for you and the working class. And that's Trump's same message. They also did the same thing to their opponents. Obama caricatured Mitt Romney as a corporate plutocrat who outsourced jobs and banned capital and all that. Obviously, the tale with Clinton is a little different, but I think it's fundamentally similar, which is that you know Clinton was depicted as someone bought by Wall Street who was on the side of globalization and corporations. And there was a wide range of scandals that I think made those, made those attacks extremely credible. And that's a coherent narrative that Trump was able to stitch together between, you know, the problems that are going on in your lives in Hillary Clinton. And I don't think it's too different from what Obama did. Did any block of voters surprise you last night? Uh, I think that we all expected the Democrats to lose considerable ground among white working class voters. I and mean, we talked about Scranton on the show once yep. as a place that was really important. Trump, only, but you know, the, and in, in the end, like Clinton only won Scranton by four, even though Obama won it by more than, more than 20 points, nearly 30 points, I believe. So that was, I think, the extreme end of what we could have imagined. Um, so the surprise was just how much... The surprise was the magnitude of the swing among white working class voters. And that was enough, though. I mean, you know, some of these suburbs around Philadelphia, for instance, I, th- I thought that Clinton would do better there. Um, I thought that Clinton would do better in the he- heavily Hispanic counties of Florida. I mean, she did not do that much better in Miami-Dade County, where there was so much room, so much room for... Trump to fall there. I mean, that huge Cuban Republican vote, all that he did to, you know, Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush, the polls that said that, you know, he was barely at 40% of the Cuban vote at times. And, you know, in the end, Clinton got 64% of the vote in Miami-Dade County and Obama got 62. It's a big county, so that matters. But I thought, you know, I thought there was a distinct possibility that she could push 70% of the vote there, given just how many Republican voting Hispanics there were for Trump to lose. And in the end, that's not quite how it worked out, I don't think. We'll see what the results say by precinct when we get them. Was there one state that if Hillary Clinton had won, would no, have changed? No, I think that's a great point. You know, would have changed you know, the outcome? You're saying no. There's no one state that would change the outcome. 
God, that so, leaves so many states off the hook. They must be breathing a sigh of relief. I, it, it does. It also, I would say, it leaves a lot of voting groups off the off the hook. You know, there there are some people on the internet talking about how you know the Hispanic vote didn't turn out for Clinton like like they would have liked, and I just alluded to that with Miami Dade. And there's some truth to that, you know, as I just alluded to in Miami Dade. Uh, but you know, even if Clinton had won Florida, she would not have won this election, which is a real surprise. Uh, and there are virtually no Hispanic voters. And virtually no is an exaggeration. They're like 3% of the electorate or 4% of the electorate in Michigan, Pennsylvania. There was no plausible scenario in which the Hispanic vote would have been able to compensate for these sort of losses among white working class voters. And, you know, it was not realistic to expect that Hispanic voters were going to win Texas or something for Clinton, which is sort of the way she would have had to do it if you wanted to win the presidency through those gains, given the losses she suffered among white working class voters. So I want to end by looking forward to the next presidential campaign and what it is about the coalition that Donald Trump assembled that both a Democratic and a Republican candidate next time kind of literally has to understand and get right. People have to understand that the Electoral College is extremely biased in favor of white working class voters. And that's not an intentional decision. It's like I sort of see people saying on the Internet. It's because by chance, the nation's well-educated and Hispanic voters are overwhelmingly concentrated in non-competitive states. Clinton can do extremely well among well-educated voters and Hispanic voters with California by 30 points, which she's going to do. She can only lose Texas by 10, which is remarkable. But that will not get her any new Electoral College votes. And Democrats have been very dependent on white working class voters in the upper Midwest and New England for a long time. Democrats outright win the white working class vote in states like Maine or New Hampshire traditionally. Maybe not so much New Hampshire, but you know, there's this whole stretch across the northern part of the country, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, upper New England, rural Washington and Oregon on the West Coast, where Democrats are extremely competitive traditionally among white working class voters. The Democratic path to the presidency without that support is extremely challenging. And, you know, it's possible that some of that will come back. But the longer term trend line in American politics has not been towards going back to where we've been. Like this is a continuation of a longer term trend of white working class support leaving the Democrats. It's sort of expanded regionally from the South where they lost it first in the South, and they sort of lost it in the upper South, in West Virginia. And now they're losing it in Pennsylvania and Michigan. And I would be surprised if in 2020, bearing, you know, obviously Donald Trump's presidency, you know, what, the, what that will look like is, is such a huge question that, you know, I wouldn't go too far in predicting what the electoral geography of it would be. But, you know, it would be very surprising to me if Democrats are doing as well among white working class voters in 2020 as, as they assumed they would, I think, in this election and as Obama did in 2012. Nate, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in perspectives at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look. 
Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm gonna guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. We've spent a year and a half bringing together millions of people from every corner of our country to say with one voice that we believe that the American dream is big enough for everyone, for people of all races and religions, for men and women, for immigrants, for LGBT people, and people with disabilities, for everyone. This has been a campaign about fear and anger. Regardless of who won, a big portion of the electorate was going to be terrified of what their future would hold for them. As it turned out, it's the people who feel overlooked, misunderstood, ill-treated, or maligned by now President-elect Donald Trump. Maureen Dowd, a Times op-ed columnist, is with me in the studio. And Nicole Hannah-Jones, a writer for the Times Magazine, is on the phone. Maureen, Nicole, thank you for being here. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having us. So which groups of Americans are terrified today? Well, I think Muslim Americans, Latinos, whether they are immigrants or not. Black Americans, many white women, I think, are terrified today. I've gotten a lot of emails today from my male friends with daughters, you know, little girls, or, and even college-age girls saying, you know, they're very upset for their daughters. And I talked to one senator who said he was driving his daughters to work and they were crying. You know, so that's been a theme of the day. I've gotten a lot of the same kinds of things, a lot of texts, a lot of phone calls, People said that they were crying, unable to get out of bed. People are actually really afraid. Some people who are afraid that there might be physical violence, but most people who are afraid more of kind of long-term consequences of this election. And uh, my daughter definitely was very surprised, and she's six, and doesn't really understand because she's heard, she's seen the TV commercials, we watch a lot of a lot of cable news, and she's seen a lot of Donald Trump's speeches and um, was actually very shocked that he won because she thinks he's abusive to women. And what did you say to her when you were watching together Donald Trump? And then what did you say to her today when she was as upset as she was? So when we were watching, she would ask me things like, is he a bad man? And initially I would say, no, no one's good or bad. Everyone has good or bad parts. But um she would ask more questions like, well, why why does he call women fat? Or why is he yelling at those people? Or why is he acting like that? And I had to, it's hard to explain to a six-year-old because I'm also trying to protect her and I don't want to paint pictures of people being all one or one thing. Uh, but I had to explain to her that, you know, some people just don't respect other people and they don't necessarily want people to have the same rights. I mean, I write about race a lot. My house is full of books on race, so we, we talk about these things quite a bit. And today, 
um, I didn't actually tell her anything about the election when she was going to school, but when she got home from school, I was watching uh, the news, and she saw that it said Donald Trump will be president because she can read now, and she was very perplexed, and I wanted to say not enough people voted for Trump, but I actually couldn't say that because Hillary won the popular vote, and Hmm. it is actually impossible (laughs) to explain to a six-year-old why we have an electoral college and how, even though most people didn't vote for Trump, he still won. So I basically just simplified and said not enough people voted for Hillary. And that also perplexed her because she didn't understand how so many people could vote for a man that she found to be a bad person. I keep thinking myself about a woman I interviewed for The Times. Her name is Jessica Leeds. She lives on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And she told us about what she said was the experience of Donald Trump groping her on the plane uh, some 30 years ago. And it, it took a lot of courage for her to do that. She endured extraordinary scrutiny as all the women who came forward to talk about this experience that they said happened to them have. And I want to ask you both, what does it say that tens of millions of Americans, many of them women, looked past that and supported Donald Trump yesterday? Well, I can give you some insight into uh, red state America because I I talked to um, my conservative siblings about this when your story ran. And... um, I think their attitude was that, you know, it wasn't fair to believe all the claims of these women in the case of Trump when the claims of women in the case of Bill Clinton were not always believed. And I think they also felt that any celebrity attracts a lot of these type of claims. And that was their explanation of it for what it's worth. And my sister didn't end up voting for Trump, but not, interestingly enough, because of your stories, which I thought would do it, or the Billy Bush thing. Uh, It was more that she didn't understand why he wasn't focused on the real issues like the economy and terrorism and things like that that she wanted to hear about and was up all night tweeting about a Miss Universe's quote-unquote massive weight game. She hates fat shaming and she thought that was ridiculous and that he had no impulse control. But it wasn't the women that caused her not to vote for him in the end. So, uh, Nicole, I don't know if you've talked to people about this at all, but Maureen, you're saying it was a kind of a a bit of a disbelief, not a cavalier disregard. No, I think they just didn't think, they didn't, you know, they were kind of like, well, With Bill Clinton, there were women who accused him of this, and they were kind of dismissed. And how do we know that these women aren't just getting in his celebrity or the stories are true? It was more like that. It wasn't, you know, it was just like the stories hadn't had time to be completely vetted or compared to the Clinton situation. So that was, you know, that was how they talked about it. Yeah, so I I heard similar things and also the sense that, the media was just trying to dig up things on him and could not be trusted. And that, why did these women take so long to come out? So therefore, um, there was a lot of skepticism about the accounts. Um, and I think just the sense that this was just par for the course of the media trying to take Trump down and not being willing to, to be part of that. I, I often um, have to remind people that I'm actually in the media. Yeah, but, uh, right. <laughs> right. But that's, those are things that I heard. You both, you both have 
the generosity, I guess you could call it, to write about the people in your family. Maureen, you write so often about your sister and your brother and their politics. And Nicole, you wrote a very moving story about how you made a decision to send your daughter to a public school in Brooklyn. And it's made for really powerful journalism. Well, it is funny because my fellow columnists keep going out on these uh, Margaret Mead expeditions (laughs) to find, well, they were uh, up until today, to find Trump voters and reason with them and try and figure out this strange creature. And uh, I just have to go home. Uh, Everybody else always seems to end up in a a coffee shop in Paris, Kentucky. (laughs) Let's finish this conversation about the woman vote in this campaign with a little bit of data Um, Women supported Clinton over Trump 54 percent to 42 percent, but that still means 42 percent of women supported Trump and 53 percent of white women supported Trump. And that's a big number. And I wonder what we make of that. Well, there were some really strange statistics that came out of this. I mean, 70 percent of voters disapproved of the way Donald Trump talked about women, right? I think that's right. And um, there was another large percentage in the 60s that uh, thought he did not have the right temperament. So that just shows you that they overcame a lot of things, you know, to vote for him, to use him as a baseball bat to smash Washington. Right, and that they didn't see it as a gender issue. Yeah, because, you know, uh, I think a lot of them have this attitude, it takes a thief to catch a thief. So they're forgiving character flaws in him. As my brother said, you know, my brother did stick with him and vote for him. And he said, he's a really flawed candidate. He hates a lot of stuff he's done. But he's a Paul Ryan conservative, and he thinks Hillary is a really flawed candidate, too. Hillary's closing line in the election was, I'm the only thing standing between you and the apocalypse. But my siblings see her as the apocalypse, which is what I think a lot of liberals don't understand. They think the media just hasn't explained well enough who Trump is. And I think the Times has done amazing work and the Washington Post, David Fahrenheit on Trump's foundation, you know, but but people don't accept it. They think if we could explain who Trump was, all you need to do is Google Donald Trump. You know who he is. But there are other reasons why people were willing to overlook those things. Wait, but to follow your logic, Maureen... Hillary Clinton, not thief enough? (laughs) No, no. I mean, my siblings do not, even even my sister who didn't vote for Trump in the end, she couldn't, did not vote for Hillary Clinton. I mean, they are conservatives. They don't want a Hillary Clinton Supreme Court. They think the Clintons, you know, are not ethical enough to return to the White House. So, you know, I'm just saying they have their reasons uh, it isn't that the media hasn't done a good enough job explaining who he is. I think they've done an excellent job. I think it took us a while to get our arms around him because he's like a tune, you know, it was like who framed Roger Rabbit with a human <laughs> in a tune. And so it did, we did struggle, but but I think we got it. Nicole, I want to ask you about another demographic question because what I'm most struck by was the collapse of the traditional democratic coalition for the Democratic nominee. And the number that strikes me, and we talked about it with Nate Cohn in this episode, was the low turnout of black voters for Hillary Clinton. And I wonder what you think happened there. It's something you've written a little bit about in the magazine. Yeah, I think there were a number of forces at work. And 
I, I think the first thing I want to say is there's a lot of fear that the Trump election is going to be blamed on black voters. And I think that's unfair. So I think that we know, one, black voters were voting at historic highs for Obama. And to see fewer voters coming out for Hillary Clinton is actually not that surprising. He was the first black president and on a second term um, was was having his legacy attacked. And, and um, we were starting to see the introduction of voter suppression laws. And I think black people came out in very high numbers to fight that. The second thing is we do know that after 2012, there was a wave of voter suppression laws. And in a lot of these key battleground states, we know that voters were being turned away from the polls. And I think that that likely did have some impact on how many black people actually voted in this election. And then clearly, um, there was also an a lot of black people who supported Bernie, a lot of black people who felt that Hillary was not a good choice. And I think there wasn't the type of enthusiasm around her as there was before. Um, but I think I think you're looking really at those three factors and not any one factor. And I think really largely what you're seeing is Trump was able also to have an Obama effect in that he was able to bring out white voters who hadn't voted before. I want to read something. Nicole, that you wrote in the magazine about what some black voters hear when they listen to Donald Trump. This is what you wrote. When Trump claims democratic governance has failed black people, when he asks, quote, the blacks what they have to lose, he's asking a poorly stated version of a question that many black Americans have long asked themselves. What dividends exactly has their decades-long loyalty to the democratic ticket paid them? What's the answer to that question? Well, I mean, if we're talking in presidential elections, I think a lot of Black Americans would feel not a lot. I mean, you have Democrats that they are willing to at least uphold the status quo and not try to roll back civil rights gains. But when you look at the larger systemic issues, school integration, uh, housing segregation, employment discrimination, you haven't seen tremendous gains in democratically run cities, and certainly Democratic administrations have not wanted to tackle these issues any more than Republicans. I think down-ballot Democratic governance does matter more for Black constituents, but you, you do have a lot of disillusionment with the Democratic Party in a sense that Black voters do not have a choice, and that Democrats understand that Black voters do not have a choice. One of the big criticisms of the Obama administration was the way that the Obama administration would often talk down to black constituents and often blame the problems that black communities suffered on their own culture or their lack of parenting or on the lack of um, fathers in the neighborhood and did not do that similarly with other folks who were struggling. So I think that 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 was a valid critique, but we also know it didn't turn many voters towards Trump. It could have been a factor in the low turnout or the lower turnout of voters, black voters for Hillary, however. I don't think black people bought what he was saying, but I think the critique definitely hit home. Maureen, on yesterday's show, Maggie Haberman recalled a, a remarkable moment when a Black Lives Matter protester went up to Hillary Clinton and had a confrontation with her. And Hillary had this kind of interesting reaction, which was sort of, don't you know who I am and what we've, what we've done? And I'm torn between that image, which is clearly a moment where she didn't seem to be using the right instincts to reach African-American voters, with the fact that in this race, Hillary Clinton 
made a, a really forceful effort to encourage black voters to come out for her, including assembling the mothers of so many of these shooting victims by police around the country and making that a powerful part of her presentation of her candidacy. But do you think ultimately the Clintons felt that they were kind of entitled to this kind of vote and this constituency and and that that somehow was communicated? Yeah, well, the great Maggie Haberman made another point today. She tweeted that in the end, Hillary didn't really have a message or a vision. She, you know, the subtext of her campaign to me was sort of like, it's my turn, damn it, you know, and Trump for all his outrageous, heinous comments had struck on a inspiring message in between all the offensive, horrible stuff. So I think what we expected in Washington was that she was going to come out of the gate with a, you know, futuristic proposals and a fresh approach. And then somehow we got dragged back into the 90s, you know. And I would say that that sense that uh, the Clintons were entitled to the black vote really chafed a lot, particularly of young black voters. Um, I remember when I was in South Carolina for the primary and I went to a black church where Hillary was on stage with, you know, what she deemed the mothers of the movement. And I was moved and I was like, oh, she actually was really connecting. Um, and I was someone who had been quite cynical of, of Hillary Clinton, about Hillary Clinton, particularly after she ran against Obama and what many considered ended up being a racialized campaign. And I thought she was brilliant. And then the very next day, a Black Lives Matter protester stood up at one of her fundraisers and she had that protester removed. And the way she handled that protester was just as revealing, if not more so, than how she was when she was on that stage. And I think that was the the Hillary Clinton that a lot of Black voters wrestled with, one who, when she was controlling the message and when Black folks were supporting her in the way that she felt they should, was embracing them, but was not really dealing with the real issues that many Black Americans were facing. Like, even when she was on stage with Mothers of the Movement, what was the actual platform that was coming out of that that was going to address gun violence in Black communities and police violence in Black communities? I don't think anyone could really say. We did an episode of this podcast entitled Why It Had to Be Her, and the thesis of it was that the country would embrace as its first female nominee and perhaps even its first female president, only somebody uniquely like Hillary Clinton, the spouse of a sitting president. That's been the case for many of the first women in the House and the Senate. They were the wives of House members, Senate members, in some cases who died and bequeathed them the seats. Now we know that the answer to that question, did it have to be her, was that actually it had to be somebody else. And I wonder what kind of woman you think it will be. That's really interesting. Yeah, I uh, Tim Kaine in his speech today with Hillary made some comment about how it was so uniquely difficult for women. But I do think in some weird ways Hillary was beyond gender. Nobody debated whether she was tough enough. And I think the most amazing thing that happened in the campaign until Trump won was young women not supporting Hillary, which is interesting. But then when I look back at my Geraldine Ferraro coverage, I also saw that same ambivalence in women that was not so much in the black community about whether they had to support the woman in the race. And 
you know, I mean, there are a lot of appealing women on Capitol Hill, Claire McCaskill and Jennifer Granholm and Amy Klobuchar, and um, there are a lot of women there. I think the problem with Hillary was not about being a woman. I think it was about being a Clinton and all the baggage that entails and how a lot of that baggage came rushing back to remind everyone of these bad patterns and the bad symbiosis of the Clintons where they always seem to be throwing chum at their enemies and giving them ammunition. Nicole, what do you think? Yeah, you know, that's hard. I I don't know what type of woman could actually become president of this country. I think we expect that that woman would have to be like Hillary, one who does not show emotion, one who is tough, one who is considered a hawk. But when we get that person, then, of course, so much of the pushback was she's not soft enough. You know, she she doesn't seem to show enough emotion. We don't know her. So I don't actually know um, in a country that has never saw fit to elect a woman or even have a woman as a major party nominee, what type of woman would be good enough for this country, particularly when you can't even get the majority of white women in this country to support a very qualified woman, whether you like her or not, over someone who clearly did not have even close to the same qualifications. What's interesting is when President Obama, when he was running for election the first time, you know, black folks had these same conversations about what kind of a black person would ever be able to be president. And, you know, folks were sure that he would have to be married to a white woman and Mm. he would have to politically not be very black, might even be a Republican. And that totally wasn't what happened. So, this country can can surprise you, but I, I actually could not tell you what type of woman would be able to overcome all of the obstacles that we place in front of a woman in order to, to be in the highest office. My daughter, surprisingly, today when, when she was talking to me about Trump winning, said, I'm really sad because I felt this country needed a woman. She's six. I don't know where that came from. I've actually never said that hmm. in our house one time. And she said, if Trump were right, he would step away and let her be president. <laughs> and I don't actually even know where that came from, but it made me really sad. You, well, you know, one heartening thing, and also for your daughter, is that the best politician in the country right now, and maybe the most popular person, is Michelle Obama. And she is such an inspiration. And... She has the quality that her husband, as brilliant a politician as he is, is missing, which is that visceral quality. And I remember when he used to do debates in the in 2008, he wasn't he was brilliant, but he just didn't like the form of debates. He thought it was stupid, the jousting. And she would keep advising him, you've got to be more visceral, less cerebral. And she was right. And she has that quality. And I think she's turned in like a perfect job performance and has set a model for parenthood. And I think she could easily walk into a high office. I think she could easily be president and a great president. Wouldn't that be something? It would be a familiar journey from first lady yeah, exactly. <laughs> to office. Yeah, and who would, was married to a senator. And it would be a perilous one. But it, Yeah, I absolutely don't think she could be president. I think that all of the qualities that people like about her 
would be the qualities that would be used against her if she were to run. Yeah, and I don't think she wants to be. I don't think she likes politics. I don't, I'm not even sure she ever wanted him to be in politics. I'm just saying I marvel at her ability to, in that treacherous position in this antiquated little satin box of first lady to <laughs> where these women who have the same qualifications and educational credentials as their husbands get stuck, uh, I just marveled at, at the grace with which she handled that job. Well, as Absolutely. we... And raising those daughters. As we mull Michelle Obama 2020, <laughs> I want to th thank you both for your time. Nicole and Maureen, thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. One last thing as we move forward with this show in its next form post-election. Like it or not, Donald Trump's vision for America is now ascendant, and we need to do a better job of talking to those people who supported his vision. So please write to us. Tell us what we missed, what we need to understand, and what you're hoping this country will look like in the next four years. Send us your emails at therunup at nytimes.com. That's therunup, all one word, at nytimes.com. That's it for The Runup. I'm Michael Barbaro. We'll see you back here next week. I'm not done processing this election, and neither are my colleagues, Wesley Morris and Jenna Wortham, the hosts of another New York Times podcast, Still Processing. In the latest episode, they talk about Trump's victory in exceedingly personal and powerful ways. Check it out. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com slash NYT. That's netsuite.com slash NYT.